This episode of Packet Pushers is brought to you in part by Manage Engine Firewall Analyzer, agentless log analytics and configuration management software that supports over 50 different firewall appliances. Visit www.fwanalyzer.com slash packetpushers and get a free 30-day trial. The easiest way to secure and accelerate your website is with Encapsula, protecting over 4 million sites from individual bloggers to the Fortune 50. Visit Encapsula.com slash packetpushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. Shields, phasers, and photon torpedoes are you know, awesome security measures available on any Galaxy-class starship. But hey, what about ways to ensure the right people are able to access the right resources within AWS? How do we control access to those resources? Well, have no fear, loyal Datanauts listeners, for this episode is all about identity access management with, you know, a few twists of humor, tales of woe, and generous helpings of awesome sauce. I am Chris Wall, and you can follow me at Chris Wall, and with me is my co-host, who has a collection of rare and exotic dropped packets on display in his living room, Ethan Banks. He's at EC Banks on the Twitters, and this is the Data Knots Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. I want to introduce our special guest. We're just going to skip right over Ethan today, because I can. Haha, it's my show. I'd like to introduce the audience to Cole Morrison. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you at on the internet? Thank you, guys. That was an incredible introduction. <laughs> Love the visual there. My name is Cole Morrison. I'm the lead engineer at this company called Field Boom. An interesting tidbit, just so you guys can remember me, is that I am actually an adopted Asian. I hail from the land of South Korea, but I grew up in Kentucky and had a southern accent as a kid, but you know, I got rid of it because... Five-year-old boy with a southern toying made people lose their minds. Of course, that logical next step was the step into tech. <laughs> and it like the amount of attention. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, it's just, it's a cardinal sin to not love it if you live in the area. <laughs> All right, well, you're good in my book then. <laughs> Bourbon is friendship. <laughs> and a little bit of background for the listeners. Cole wrote a very in-depth, I mean, this thing is pretty long, introduction to identity access management, or IAM. I guess there's different ways you could say that, but I'll say I am because it sounds funny. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. At any rate, I stumbled upon on the internets and I'm like, this thing is awesome because identity access management is confusing and it uses all these terms that I'd never heard of. I wanted to have him on the show to talk about that. And I think we'll start at the very, very basics. High level introduction. What the heck is identity access management? What's it all about? Well, I could be a troll like the docs and say it's all about identity and access management, <laughs> but... At its simplest level, it's just how we manage permissions for our AWS resources. Whether that's a server or a user, it really doesn't have to be more complicated than that. It's just that simple. I, I read this blog post in preparation for the recording today, and, and you state right at the top the problem state, which is just priceless. It sounds like you, maybe you've been burned here before. You know, you got to develop the app feature. You deploy it to AWS. Oh, I need I am. And oh, crap, I'm really overwhelmed by all the documentation that Amazon provides. And then you fall asleep trying to read the docs and you begin just screw it, copy paste examples and hope it works and et cetera. I mean, is it is it really that hard to get into I am? I mean, yeah, I think that the process of learning almost every AWS service for the first time follows those lines. I mean, geez, with 
AWS code bill, they said, hey, you get 100 free build minutes a month. I burned all of those just trying to get it set up the first time with Docker and CloudFormation. So it seems to be the trend. It's just, you know, the, the burn process is either an overwhelm of information or it's an underwhelm to where there's not enough, which means you either wind up journeying into page two or three of the Google search results, which, you know, are generally lemons, or you set up a controlled experiment to see what does and doesn't work. And by that time, you've forgotten what you originally set out to do. I didn't think there was anything on page two Google. I thought it was just like here be dragons and like a skull and crossbones or something. Yeah, practically. That is basically it. So it's about controlling access to resources. That kind of makes sense. What does a policy look like? Like what are you generating necessarily and where do you apply it? Is it all just you're clicking buttons in a GUI or are you building a config file? You know, kind of describe the process at a high level. Yeah, as outlined in the blog post, the more technical explanation is it is that it's a set of rules, a set of rules that under the correct conditions define what actions the policy principle, which is just the policy holder, the dude who's got it, can take to specified AWS resources, which is, of course, just all a mouthful to say who can do what to which resources in AWS and when do we care? Where does it apply? It applies to anything that you need to control access to. When you get into any security paradigm in IT, a lot of times you try to bolt it on afterwards. In other words, okay, I got this thing I'm going to do. I'm going to I got to build this thing and I got to make it work. And then you worry about making it work and you get all that tested and that's cool. And you're like, okay, now that I've got this thing, I'm going to secure it. The way you described it and, and the, the length and the detail you went into the blog was makes me feel like, okay, that's really the wrong approach here. That if I'm building an AWS service, I should be including IAM from the beginning or do I that's what I want to get your take on I mean is it an optional thing should everybody start with it like right at the beginning because it's too hard to bolt on what's your take yeah that's a great question because I've I've gotten that from some juniors too because they're like well I've never used it before and I've been fine let's put it this way it's about as optional as uh like the lock on your front door you don't need it but <laughs> you need it right when do you need it well I mean, even if my house was empty, I'd still put a lock on the door. It wouldn't be the end of the world if I didn't, but that's really how I think about it. The more furniture and valuables and stuff that I start packing into my house. Well, is there any default security posture that you have when you stand up AWS services or, you know, by default as you set these up? The permissions are too broad by default, perhaps. You know, what, what is the default posture? And then, you know, how do you use that to govern you know, what you do with IAM? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is AWS starts you off very generalized and very open in some areas. For example, with when you set up an account, I am by default is using your root account, which if you read any of their docs, they have a cow about and like, no, you should never do that. But if you create a new VPC for the first time, it locks everything down by default and you have to slowly open things back up. So from a development standpoint, should you start with it from day zero? You should keep it in mind, but when you're developing and your house is in the middle of nowhere, right? So no one knows about it. No one's doing anything with it. It's not public. You can get away and stay focused on developing with your feature, but you do need to understand that these bolt-ons aren't something to necessarily be done right now if, if they're in your way, but they, they aren't something that you do after you put it out. It's before you've routed traffic and shown the public that stuff's there that needs to be set in place. 
Now, is there an impact to your development cycle possibly if you don't include your security right out of the get-go? In other words, if I write code, I test it, and, and like you said, because you're out in the middle of nowhere, no one knows you're there, so you can just kind of you know do your development and get things working. Are you going to be sorry that you did that later on because it's just so difficult to bolt on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It It's almost like the length at which you can get away with bolting it on later is how well you know it in order to just develop as if you're going to do it later. Yes, it can. Absolutely. Especially when you get into stuff like VPCs. Those are things where if you configure them wrong at the get-go, well, there's no going back to it after it's been set up. So, Like the kill it with fire option. Oh, I messed it up. Time to just burn down the whole building and start over. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's what I thought you were going to say, Cole. Just in that, you know, going through the post, the the level of granularity you can get to for the different services and roles and so on. It was like, wow, I would not want to be standing up infrastructure, or writing code, and not be taking this into consideration on some level. Was kind of was kind of my takeaway. Definitely, a, you know, bolting it on later. It's not like going into Microsoft Active Directory and you know the file system and throwing some groups on some files to secure them. It's easy. No big deal. It seems it's just way more intense than that. Oh, yeah, totally. But again, you know, AWS tries to help you some where you provision an EC2 instance. It'll try and give you default security groups. It gives you a default VPC. It sets up some sensibles in terms of security, which is why when you're just trying to, to hash out a concept for the first time or get stuff up, it's not like the end of the world. So, I mean, it can't be that incredibly easy. As you make point to, you know, they give you some level of startup point mm-hmm. because you wrote this blog post. And I'm kind of curious, what was the driver to really sit down and explain I am? And I got to say, it's this thing's a treasure trove of knowledge. I've <laughs> never been so excited about learning how to build security policies before. I was kind of weirded out how many times I read this, like, oh, this is really cool. This is interesting. So what was the motivation to write this blog post? First off, thanks. I honestly thought like five people would care about this because <laughs> you look through the internet and there's nothing on there. Like you go, it's just doc after doc. Like, well, I guess I'm the idiot and everyone else understands it. So <laughs> really it was for other teammates. And one of my previous gigs, I, I came in and I am had already quote unquote, been configured. (laughs) Long story short, it was such a mess that half of our devs were uploading staging files to a previous developer's AWS account instead of our own. This guy was gone. He had left the company. And during that fix up, it became painfully obvious that I couldn't just ask someone, hey, dude, can you go set up this S3 bucket and lock it down to our account? Because as soon as you do that, well, you get asked about I am, and then of course he goes on and on and on. So life is much easier if I can just point someone to somewhere that says, hey, just check this out and then come back and we can talk about what you need to do. Security is that thing that you hate and you have to have all the same time. Uh, so my take with security at really any level is that it's got to be part of what you do right from the beginning or your, your QA and testing processes are invalid. I've just been victimized by this. It was like, yeah, we tested it. Oh, we got to have the security. I'm just, that's It's fine. Don't worry about that. Yeah, it makes things harder when you're doing the security during your testing process. It can slow things down. But I mean, I think it's worth it because then you're really testing the right things, what's really about to happen in production. And sometimes for whatever reason, people are like, it's too hard. I don't want to. But I think you got to. For sure. I, I actually like the lock analogy. 
you know, you can leave things wide open, basically not have a lock on your door and let in anyone that you want. But it makes tons of sense to narrow that down a little bit, you know, putting the lock on the door to make sure you have some security, especially when you're doing something beyond tinkering. You know, I, I think if you're just playing with something literally to figure out how it works and have no expectations of ever using the results of that, that's fine. But at some point, you got to go back and recreate it with security and the access management in mind. So, you know, again, don't just uh, build something expected for prod on your first go and then be sad because you have to burn it to the ground. We're taking a quick break from the show to talk about Manage Engine Firewall Analyzer. Firewall Analyzer is log analytics and configuration management software that supports over 50 different firewall appliances, and there is no agent required. With Firewall Analyzer, you centrally collect, archive, and analyze security device logs, and then generate forensic reports from that information. In other words, Firewall Analyzer is the tool you use to make sense of the endless piles of security data your firewalls are sending you. If you're like me and you like to crank up the detail level on your logs so that you have absolutely all the information, you end up with far, far more stuff than you can actually deal with by yourself and you need a tool to help you. With Manage Engine Firewall Analyzer, you can automate compliance audits using built-in reports for regulatory mandates such as PCI DSS, ISO 27001, SANS, NERC, CIP, and NIST. You can also get an audit trail of all changes done to your firewall configuration using change management reports. You can monitor network traffic and receive instant notifications during spikes in bandwidth utilization. You can quickly search the logs and pinpoint the exact log entry at the root of the security event that you're investigating. Does that all sound interesting? Well, you can find out more about Manage Engine Firewall Analyzer by visiting www.fwanalyzer.com slash packet pushers. One more time, that's www.fwanalyzer.com packet pushers. If you head up there now, they will give you a free 30-day trial. All right, Cole, let's dive in and get nerdy with this thing. We set the stage. Now I want to, I mean, your post went very deep. So, okay. You use this example throughout the post. Uh, you distill the policy into something that's you know kind of like a mystery novel, who, what, why, and when, which is a great way to think about it. And you mentioned like along the way, you've got this KFC bucket example and whether or not the colonel is allowed to put objects into the bucket and that would be sad if he could not and so on, which is just prices. It really helped bring everything together. So uh, explain that again, the, the, the who, what, why, and when help people that are listening understand the different aspects of those pieces and parts, because there's a lot to it with AWS, the kind of objects that you can act on. In terms of what a policy is, I felt that it was really important to just break it down into those critical aspects, because it doesn't need to be that complicated. When it comes down to it, you have the who, which is just anything from a user, a group, or a role. It's just who's doing this? Who does this policy apply to? What actions can our who do? we have a user called Datanauts, can Datanauts run EC2 instances? That's the what. The which, which is, well, which target of the what? So maybe they can run EC2 instances, but which ones? All of them. And then the final piece is just when, which is under what conditions. For example, maybe anyone who's Datanauts, but maybe Datanauts has to be at a particular IP address or during a certain time. So yeah, those are the basic components of it. Hmm. All right, we have the high level. Let's teach people how to fish, at least at a high level. And then when they want to go really deep, they can reference the blog article and, and throw some more traffic your way. According to you, 99% of the time, you're going to focus on the principle, the action, the resource, and the condition. There's other components, but these are like the meat and potatoes. So I figured let's walk through all four of these to get your understanding and kind of the history behind it, starting with the principle. And it was funny because when I first saw that, when I went to set up IAM, I'm like, 
all right, so what's a principle? You know, and it was just like the who makes more sense, although not the band. So it's like you say, who is trying to do this stuff? It could be a user, group, or role. You give an example with a bit of code, and that's where you start referencing the principle in the ARN. So I think that's a good place to logically start. How do we find out and what is the principle and the ARN? What are those things? Well, principle is just a fancy way of saying who this policy applies to, like, like we mentioned. And the ARN, well, that's the Amazon resource name. So let's use a little tiny analogy here. If AWS was a big MySQL table, and if everything you create in AWS was a row in the table, well, then an ARN would be the unique ID. And that's what it is at its simplest level, just a unique identifier for each and every resource. Now, do you have to associate those to the ARN with the principal, or is that done for you by Amazon and you've got to reference them somehow? Yeah. So in terms of association, it depends on which way you're coming from. So the, the basic way and the way that they show you in the docs and, and how what's going on behind the scenes, even when you don't do it, is that you take a principal field and a policy and you set it equal to a principal type first. So you say there's three types. There's AWS, which is just an IAM user or an IAM role. There's federated, which is just like users who are signing in with different identity providers. And then there's service, which is actually, and we'll get into that a little bit later, I believe, a service like EC2. And so the way that you connect these two is you specify the principal type like AWS, and then you grab the Amazon resource name of that particular user or federated user and attach it there. That's how you associate the two. Okay, and it sounds like the ARN, apparently I was saying it wrong, not the ARN, the ARN can also be services. Like one thing that you would give an example was ec2.amazonaws.com. And that's a friendly name. So (laughs) so when would you use that? Where do you find those at? It seemed uh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, what's funny about this part is even though it's called a friendly name, it is probably one of the least friendly things to find. You'd think this answer would be straightforward. (laughs) And I've looked a lot. Like I looked so much for a consolidated list of those friendly names, but I don't actually think there is a list of consolidated names. So the way that you get them is you have to go to this link, which you can find by just searching for services that work with I am, and that will show a list of services that can acquire temporary credentials, which is what you're interested in when you want a service to be able to assume and take the power of a policy. And from there, you just follow those links through to their docs and go to their I am section and you'll run into the friendly name eventually. <laughs> the pattern seems to be, though, the namespace of the service plus Amazon.com. And if you search for Amazon resource names and namespaces, every service has a specific namespace. So like CloudFormation, its namespace is just CloudFormation in all lowercase. And that's how you would construct, at least to my knowledge, the best way to get the friendly name. Interesting. And you, you also reference users, groups, and roles. I mean, users and groups kind of make sense to me. Role sounds a little bit like it needs explaining. And I was totally <laughs> smacked by my days back in Novell administration. I'm like, roles, I remember those. Differentiate users, groups, and roles for us? Users, they're what you would think they are. They're just straight up users. They're the most straightforward. An individual user, we might set up a data knots user, and they optionally might have access keys, a password, and a login. The only misconception about users is that they're not just for humans. If you have a third-party service that needs access to CLI, you want to make a user for that service. And that's how you would let the third party connect with your AWS resources. 
And of course, once you've created a user, that doesn't mean anything. They can't do anything until you start attaching these policies to them. Groups, just think membership clubs. You create a group and attach permissions to the group. Any users that belong to that group inherit those permissions. You know, this is convenient because it saves us a lot of time from having to manage permissions piecemeal. Now, for roles, well, they're a little bit more ambiguous, and it's very hard to explain them without either sounding too technical or getting far-fetched. So I think the better way is probably to just be a little bit more far-fetched. Let's go through an example, because roles actually wind up having (laughs) two policies on them. We may have a role called Thor's Hammer, right? And we'll attach to it a permission IM policy, and it's got all sorts of dazzling powers. But Note the word permission here, permission policy. Permission policies are what the docs are generally referring to and what we've been talking about so far. They are the who can do what to which resources and when. But with this role, we probably don't want to allow anyone to use Thor's hammer, right? Because then you just let all sorts of chaos go forth. So really, the thing you have to do is you have to attach another policy called a trust policy. And this is a whole other IAM policy that defines who can assume and use this role, who can use Thor's hammer and its weird powers. That's the idea of a role. It just think of Thor's Mjolnir. It can be passed, but it doesn't necessarily belong to him. And that's the same thing with roles. You can pass them, other services can become them, but they don't necessarily belong to any one person. So would I be able to assign a user and a group to a role then? So they take on, I'm, so I'm just trying, this is weird, right? It's like I'm getting the concept of role and then I'm trying to imagine how I would apply you know, a role to an object or a user to a role or, in, in other words, the terminology I think is a little puzzling. Although I would love to have Thor's hammer. That would be amazing. <laughs> That's right there. It's like, can groups assume roles? No, they cannot. Okay. Can users? They can, but you only really need to do that if you're doing cross-account stuff. So between AWS accounts or if they're federated users trying to gain temporary credentials. But for the most part, if they're users in your account, you would just, the best way to do that is to just put them into a group or take them out of a group. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ah. okay. Okay, Cole, let's move the story ahead there. With the, you, you had a permission slip idea when it came to assigning the principle. Could you explain that analogy to help us understand users, groups, and roles a little bit better? Yeah, if... The policy is attached to the user group or role. Just think of it like a permission slip. If it's attached to a resource, it's like a VIP list, right? So if we have a user called kernel and an S3 bucket called KFC, just the KFC bucket, if the policy is with the user, just imagine the the kernel walking around with a permission slip. He shows up to the KFC bucket and requests objects. To figure out the permissions, we look at the slip and it tells us if he gets the objects or not. Since the slip is with a user, we don't really need to know who it applies to because he's got it. So we know it's for that user. However, if it's on the resource, right? So if it's slapped on the KFC bucket, then we can just imagine the kernel walking around. Nothing. He shows up to the bucket. We check the permissions on the bucket and we'll either say, okay, he's on the list or he's not. That's really the main thing. We have the resource ones and the the identity-based ones. Okay, you're kind of reminding me of getting into Active Directory with tokens that compile your use, what things you can do, and and, and so on. It's funny, you know, the way we administrate permissions and what's visually represented to us uh, in some of these a variety of systems all across IT are sometimes different than what's going on. So the permission slip analogy is pretty helpful. Do I specifically have been granted these permissions and I have this piece of paper saying I can do something that I present to the system? Now that I want to do X and I get allowed or denied versus 
I'm me and I go up to the thing and, and I have access to get to those things. It's a, a little different of a, a way of looking at it. Of course, now I'm getting cranky because like, really, do we have to have all these different flavors and ways to get access to things uh, in the Amazon world? And I'm, I'm sure there's use cases for everything, but it sounds like one of those deals where there's five different ways to do the same thing, perhaps, and you got to figure out what works the best in a in a given use case. That's not fair, though. You're talking about flavors and we're talking about KFC buckets. Like, I want some fried chicken now. That's, uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. well, let's move the needle a little bit. And if you want to go much deeper on the who and the, the principles, definitely read the blog post. We, we barely scratched the surface on it. But I think you got the high-level stuff. Let's move on to the action, which is the what. You make the example, it's what actions can the who take? You know, Can they run an instance on EC2? Can they put objects or chicken into the bucket? Can they put logs into CloudWatch, et cetera? The format seems to be you basically declare the service and then what actions can be taken on the service. So one example you have is for Amazon S3, they're allowed to put object. And then another one was for Amazon S3 or S3, they're allowed to get with like a wildcard. So I guess the first question I had was, okay, wildcarding, that seems a little dangerous. I don't know what all the git commands huh. are. Um, is that safe to do? You know, what's, what's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's obviously never the best idea to just wildcard the crap out of everything. That wouldn't be wise. But I <laughs> admittedly... <laughs> It kind of comes down to the type of policy you're going to use if you're doing an identity-based one, meaning the permission slip, right? If you're doing a resource-based one, so where it's on the bucket, where it's on the KFC bucket, that's where you want to stay away from those wild cards, really. You don't want the bouncer outside of the bucket just saying, well, I've got this little thing here that says anyone that comes in. Whereas if it's with your VIP himself, that's when they're a little bit easier to get away with. And an example of this, a very practical example, is if you have like developers that are all developing on their own EC2 instances or their own S3 buckets, well, this is a case where it would make perfect sense to just say, well, if the resource is the bucket that belongs to them, just wildcard all their permissions for it. They can do anything they want to it because it's just confined, mm -hmm. locked onto them. Basically make them an admin over their resource because it's theirs. Who cares? Yeah, totally. There's a point here worth making, which is depending on the Amazon service that you are setting security permissions on, Cole, you link to a page from the blog post that takes you into this Amazon like uh, command and object hierarchy and then all the permissions that can be set underneath each of those objects. And so you can get incredibly granular with what people are allowed to do on what sort of AWS object. And so I think, you know, in my mind, it was like, well, right, in certain circumstances, like what you just described, where someone's going to be a full admin over this, you're just going to wildcard it where, you know, the commands all have hierarchies where there's a prefix that's common to all of them. So you can put in that prefix, asterisk, you've got everything. You've got all, you don't have to fuss around with it being super granular, the, the 15 or 20 different actions you could take. Give all of those granular things, give that person the ability to do all of that stuff. That's desirable. It's going to be easy to administrate and appropriate in certain circumstances, but you can get super crazy with it if you need to, really granular. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You can, someone who's absolutely paranoid would never use the wild card. They would go in and they would choose every single action and paste it in. And you know what? Realistically, it would probably only take you another, what, five minutes maybe? Granted, that's assuming you know what each of those actions represent, but that would lock it down specifically. Um, so yes, but if you, again, if like we mentioned earlier, if it's just specific to one dude, right, and it's just his development bucket and he's doing whatever he wants with it, then that's where you're going to have that safety. So yeah, the power is there for the taking if, if you so desire it. 
Yeah, but I can see that being really frustrating. Like you're trying to do something and you keep getting like error, no permission. You're like, well, which one <laughs> is it? Because there's 300 of them, you know. So the wild yeah. card might be a good way to say like, is it this problem? And then maybe you pare it down from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Now, you mentioned earlier just the huge amount of docs that will you know, be a cure for insomnia as you're trying to plow through and, and learn all this. But in and amongst that huge amount of documentation, is it good? I mean, is it solid so that if you get lucky and find the right entry, it's complete and tells you what you need to know? So you're talking about like the default policies that the docs are like, hey, if you need to do it, just use this. So, for example, you link to this page that shows you all these granular permissions we were talking about. I mean, if you click through to that, could you actually figure out exactly what it is you need to know? Or is it some (laughs) technical documentation is just so friggin' bad. You read it and you're like, I just read three paragraphs and nothing happened in my brain. I have no idea what they just said. Yeah, the sad answer to that is most of the time it's just going to say, hey, just go check this out at the other docs (laughs) for a lot of their stuff. and. Yeah, and then it'll start you at the top level of that service, and you'll have to hope that they didn't update it recently or move the link, which I've seen them do quite a few times, and I've already had to update the post itself that was pointing to a link they had updated. So it it depends on stuff that doesn't change a lot, like S3. Those tend to be there, but for newer services like Batch that just came out, those aren't even listed in some of the places. I like the idea of being able to use a wildcard as part of the actions, such as git with an asterisk or a wildcard after the word git, which allows you to use any command that starts with git, you know, all the basically retrieval commands, rather than having to outline all of the various git commands and go like, check, 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 you know, you you could, but I like it as a way to semi-limit the activities of a principal on a resource. What about you, Ethan? Kind of related. Granular capabilities like this, like, I mean, so many levels of detail that you can get into when you're assigning permissions. And that's a two-edged sword. It's awesome to have that power. And then if you really go crazy writing a super granular policy, troubleshooting can be a nightmare. So there's a balance to be found there. Like you said, there are times when you want to use that wildcard where it just makes sense. It makes certain things easier and it's the right thing to do. On the other hand, I am kind of glad that you can get as granular as you might need. It really says that uh, AWS has done their homework here and are giving people all the power that they might need to secure their infrastructure in as detailed a way as they might want to. Datanauts listeners, I'm sure you're aware that DDoS attacks are a normal part of life. Either you've been hit by one or you likely will be. Our sponsor today, Encapsula, can protect you from DDoS attacks while also offering bot protection, website security, load balancing, and a content distribution network all in one easy-to-use service. The big idea is to put Encapsula in front of your website and keep it delivering content. Encapsula has seen all the traffic anyway, so they're going to block the bad stuff and accelerate the good stuff. I think the bot protection feature is a pretty interesting one because it's one of those things I've become increasingly aware of since I have to run several busy social media accounts and websites. And I've noticed lately that bots are responsible for more and more blog comments because they are getting smarter. At first glance, the comment looks legit. And then you notice the URL of the email address that they submit with a sneaky buggers. But Encapsula will block scrapers and spammers and security probes and other malicious bots. In fact, they block over 400,000 threats per minute. To add Encapsula's capabilities to your website, please visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and then use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. 
One more time, that's Encapsula.com slash Packet Pushers, and then use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A, Encapsula. Okay, Cole, at this point, we know what IM is, and we've got the, the who, the principle, as well as the what, which is the action that they can take. But we don't know what they want to do yet. We don't know like what resource they want to modify and when that's possible. So let's dig into those two pieces. Start with the resource, which you kind of labeled the which. And your example is, you know, what action can the who, you know, the principal take on which resources? And as I read that, I was thinking like the line, the witch in the wardrobe. So, <laughs> but dumb ching. So, okay, let's talk about that. What resources are available to you, the policy creator, to limit what the principal has access to? Like what, what is a resource in this kind of context? You've talked about the bucket, but, you know, other examples would be great. Yeah, for sure. There's a uh, there's a link. It, you can find it by looking for Amazon resource names in AWS service namespaces. And this is going to show you a list with examples. It's actually one of the better docs in their knowledge base that shows all of the different services that can be targeted as a resource. And that is the most straightforward way to get a consolidated list. So could you just wildcard everything? Like you wanted to create a you know, sort of a super admin permission to wildcard the entire range of resources? <laughs> yeah, you could actually. <laughs> you can just you can just put resource colon and then asterisk and boom, suddenly you're hitting everything. What's interesting about that though is even though if that that's a case, let's say that you have a resource pointing to wildcard, meaning all resources, but you have actions. The actions for this policy say only S3 get object. Well, suddenly you have an interesting policy here. Even though you can do anything to any resource, the only thing you can do is S3 get object, which means you can only hit S3 buckets. That's kind of a mental somersault. There. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. Like you can do everything as long as it's this. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how do you construct a resource within the policy? Because when I saw some of your examples, it looked like this giant face roll of just random characters. <laughs> so, like, what's, what's kind of the methodology to building a resource entry within the policy? Well, first you start with the, if we have a JSON object, you start with the resource field itself and you open it up. And inside of here, you put what is that ARN, that unique identifier. And that unique identifier, it has certain pieces of information in it. It consists of first two basically pointless fields that all stay the same. And by the way, these are all separated by colons. You have ARN, next you have AWS, and there's colons in between those, and colon, and then you specify the service like EC2, and the way that you know what services it is, you just use that list of namespaces that we mentioned earlier. So like EC2 or CloudFormation, then you specify the region, then you specify your account number, and then finally after all of that, then you can specify the resource type and the specific resource itself. So instance, right? So you have the service EC2, you have the resource type of instance, and then what instance? Well, the ID. And that would be the very long and probably terrible explanation of Amazon resource name and how you build a path to a resource. Reminds me of the old like 10-10-3-2-1 phone call guy. Like dial 10-10-3-2-1, <laughs> then the number, you know, and then you finally call the person. You know, it's like, geez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Cole, can you supply variables within that long string or within a resource field specifically to make it more dynamic? Yeah, that's actually one of the saving graces <laughs> of the resource field is it, it looks, whenever you make a request a resource, a lot of data comes in with that request. And the policy will take that data and make it available inside of the policy as variables. So an example of one of those is AWS colon username. And that will interpret the friendly name 
by the way, whenever you say friendly something in AWS, that usually means you're never going to find where that's coming from. But it means the friendly name of the current user requesting the resource. So yes, you can, and it, it'll save you a lot of time. You'd actually want to do it that way. I mean, you would not want, it's almost like hard coding something. You'd never, like developers would never hard code an IP address. Yes, they would actually, but you'd never do that. You'd <laughs> actually use the DNS name. You, you're going to, you're going to want a variable in, in, in a resource here. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure. There's especially, especially just really basic ones like date time. If you need some data to expire, especially if you have like temporary data you're storing in S3 or something, username makes it so much easier to just keep a single source of truth and one policy that you apply to all users as opposed to, you know, having to go through and make one for every single user. Yeah, that makes total sense. I was feeling like that feeling when the dentist is drilling in your teeth when you said developers never hard code IPs in it. They're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, I've been burned by that so many times. Yep. So, Cole, one thing that you brought out, you have all these little gotchas in the article, and we really haven't been paying homage to all of the cool little gotchas you have. <laughs> these are these are like the war stories that everyone wants to hear, like what screwed up and how do I avoid these landmines? The one I wanted to call out because I loved it was something that logically made no sense to me, and I'm glad you pointed out because it finally did click. And you talk about resources in the context of X3 as an example. So, like if I apply a policy to the bucket you would assume that the bucket would then infer that it is the resource. And apparently that's not always so. Can you kind of explain that to the <laughs> audience? Yeah, it's actually it's funny about that. It's actually never so. <laughs> he has three buckets. It's never um, so. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's it's so, and it. I think it. the reason it tripped me up is because after I read through the docs, you finally find somewhere, and don't ask me where it is, but it's somewhere in the docs saying that principle is implied on user groups and roles, you just, when you put one on a bucket, you're like, well, it would make sense for the bucket to think that, oh, this is me that we're talking about here, right? But nope, you have to specify the bucket itself. So you like hand the bouncer the VIP list and you're like, yeah, and that is definitely for this club you're standing in front of. He's like, oh, okay. So (laughs) that's why it tripped me up so much. And it's something to remember when you use a resource-based policy, so a VIP list, you still have to target the resource that it's supposed to protect. And I think the reason they did it is because it gives you more, it gives you the control over stuff within it. Because you don't always want to just say the whole bucket. Sometimes you just want to collapse it and zero in on just some of the resources inside of that resource. So maybe objects within the bucket specifically. Interesting. Can can you actually say like resource is me, you know, like the whatever it is, or do you have to specifically (laughs) call it out? Yeah, you legitimately have to like put the ARN of the bucket, even though you've just attached it to the bucket. <laughs> I'm not as hungry for that fried chicken now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Cole, we've talked about the who, the what, the which, and now we need to get to the when, the condition. When do we care? And then you, in your blog post, you gave a bunch of examples. For example, an IP matching a certain range of IPs. If the time of day is before a particular day, if the AWS's username includes the string cheese and so on. So let's get into that. When do do you always have to have a condition or is it one of those things you add on in certain circumstances because you need that granularity? Yeah, it kind of depends. The the thing is, the funny thing about the docs is they talk about it all in context of like locking it to a particular IP range or something or or like giving like the username or checking it against the date time and stuff. But really, a lot of the time you're going to be using specific context keys. You're going to have a policy for a user and you're going to set up a condition that says something like, when they try and access this EC2 instance, we want to see if it has a tag on it with a prefix dev hyphen. 
So maybe we have a dev data knots tag that we put on certain resources. We could set up a condition that says any tag that has this, well, this policy will allow them to get through to it. And a lot of times that's what you're going to wind up using. And those condition keys, if you just search for condition keys, AWS IAM condition keys, they'll give you a list of values you can check in that you can check inside of the condition section of a policy to get down to those finer level of uh, permissions surrounding the services. Some of these conditions seem scary to me, like they'll work for a while and then in a few months, someone can't get into something because something changed or the circumstances changed. Like like IP is a classic one. You, you could define a range, but then it's there's a million reasons why someone's IP address might fall out of that range, a bunch of circumstances. Time of day made sense at the time to lock it down to these times of day or this date. And then now someone needs to get into it. Oh, it's late at night. And we never considered that. I mean, for you personally, just as you dealt with conditions, have there been specific things that have made sense? You really wanted to put that condition on. And then other times where you looked at a condition and went, eh, that's probably more trouble than it's worth in the end. Yeah. You know, if you want to lock stuff down between VPCs, for example, that can that can be pretty useful and not even yeah, it's it's almost like less for security and more for organization, more so that you don't accidentally put something in the wrong place. But you know, I'll be completely honest with you, if you don't have to use the condition, just don't. In my opinion at least, the simpler it is, it doesn't necessarily mean it's less powerful, but the better. Like as you've already seen, you can do a lot of weird mental math to come up with a permission scheme. We could <laughs> we could say any resource any action and then set up a condition that says if it's this bucket and if it's this action and then we would have the same thing but there's not really a point to yeah to me it kind of smacked as like the poor man's firewall specifically looking at (laughs) ip address filtering you know you look at oh you can only do this if you're from this particular ip well that's not that secure i mean it seems like there's a lot of ways (laughs) around that but it could be like i said maybe more just to make sure well if it's not from this ip the firewall would have caught it, but I also want to make sure that my dev cluster isn't sending it. That's not an attack. It's just making sure, hey, make sure that these particular ranges could potentially not hit something that would be bad as a mistake instead of like cool kid hacker trying to get into my shiz <laughs> and using, you know, using conditions to keep that out. Is that a use case at all or am I totally in left field there? You know, that's the kind of the sad part about it is with certain services like SQS and S3, these resource policies and their poor man's firewall are all you have. That's that's how you secure them. You don't. They have S3. You probably heard of, maybe haven't, but there's this other concept called ACLs that you can use with S3. And a lot of people don't know this, but those are legacy, and the docs tell you not to use those if you don't have to. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. So that leaves you with just with just resource policies. And all you can do, the best thing you can do is make very elaborate rules that don't stick to IP. Maybe do something like the temporary credentials, do certain things like locking it down to your account, locking it down to, you know, just other factors that aren't as changing and breaking. But for stuff like EC2, that's where you want to use stuff like security groups and network ACLs that are more of a, an actual layer of security. Oh, you brought up something called uh, AWS Global Condition Keys. So can you describe what those are and then when I might want to use them? Oh, yeah. That's just their like long-winded way of saying variables you can use in any policy regardless of the service. <laughs> so like source IP of the request, the current user, the current time, stuff like that. More or less reserve keywords, things that I can, you know, that they've def- predefined for me that I can use anywhere. 
Yep. Got it. And then, of course, there's those versions of those for each specific service, like, you know, EC2 colon VPC. That'll tell you what VPC the request is coming from. I feel so secure. I think I can get all of my security matters handled now, at the very least at a high level. And if you were following along with the show and you're like, okay, that sounds interesting because it is, definitely check out Cole's blog. And we got the link to the blog post itself in the show notes because it's really interesting. And you should be using security on your AWS instances and all the other things that are in there. So Cole, I want to thank you very much for joining the show. And again, where can we people find you on the interwebs? Anything cool that you want to plug as we close here? Yeah, just the best place to find me is, uh, is at my blog, which we have in the show notes where uh, I put up my my trials and tribulations with AWS. I've got some stuff up around, if you're especially if you're still interested in security, I have a really long post up about VPCs, which are another dark area of the docs. Some stuff on ECS and scaling, so a lot of good stuff there. And uh, next month, I'm actually going to put out a video series. It's just called Practical and Professional DevOps with AWS, Docker, and Node. And the whole idea behind it was like, dude, just someone show me how to set up production-ready pipeline and development environment and deployment from scratch. So I just put together these videos, started doing it out of a hobby with just this main zeitgeist of never saying you wouldn't do this in production. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Finally, a shout out to my company, Field Boom, that, that I work for. If you need better surveys and are sick and tired of SurveyMonkey, check us out. Right on. Well, again, thank you very much for being on the show. Definitely check out the show notes for the links to all the, uh, the goodies there. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. If you are a social creature, and we definitely know that you are, you can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And my blog is wallnetwork.com. Or my delightful friend Ethan, he's at ECBanks on the Twitters. And his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the data knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to the cloud, full stack engineering, security architecture, and so much more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your kernel have access to the KFC bucket, and your cables be cleanly managed. Sorry, was that a question? <laughs> so, <laughs>